Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Neo's Rewind. My name is Anne van Maurik and today I speak with Rolf Futselaar. And Rolf is researcher at the NEOS and professor of social history of war, mass violence and genocide at Erasmus University in Rotterdam. In November uh, 2021, Rolf held his inaugural lecture about the indelible marks of total war on 20th century lives. And today's NEOS Rewind uh, episode will be about this topic. But Rolf, uh, I want you to listen to something. What do we hear here? Yeah, that is definitely Albert King. And the song Born Under a Bad Sign, which was the title of my inaugural lecture. Nice. <laughs> um, what does this title uh, say about your lecture? Well, it, it doesn't necessarily cover everything. I think we'll get to that in a moment. But certainly my uh, inaugural lecture focused in part on the problems of being born in the wrong time, uh, at the wrong, in the wrong place at the wrong time. And that is also what this song is about, right? If it wasn't for bad luck, I would have had no luck at all, as uh, Albert King puts it. In your inaugural lecture, you elaborate on several themes uh, to explain your thoughts on cohort effects. But before we uh, go further on this, perhaps you can tell us what are cohort effects? Well, you can imagine things happen in your life that have an impact on later life. And many of those things are purely personal, right? Only you have your parents with their quirky behavior and only I have mine, etc. Um, but there are also things that affect you and all the people of your age at roughly the same time, right? Think, for example, of the wars in the former Yugoslavia, which had a very specific effect on people who were, for example, teenagers at the time or in their early 20s. Those effects are cohort effects and they can last very long. It's also important to differentiate cohort effects from age effects. There are certain things that happen to you and people of your age just because you're all aging, right? I will, not quite yet, but soon, need reading glasses, right? It is sad, but true. That's not a cohort effect. That's just an age effect, even though it happens to all the people of my age at roughly the same time. Thanks. In your inaugural lecture, you elaborate on, on several themes to explain your thoughts on these cohort effects of war and violence in the 20th and 21st century. And in this interview, I want to discuss three of the topics which you touch upon in your lecture. Yeah. I'm sorry there were so many topics. Yeah. but uh... <laughs> Quite all over the place. But it's, that's actually quite nice because now we have a very broad selection of topics. So firstly, you argue that major historical events are often narrated through personal stories to engage people emotionally in this history, but that in fact this does little for our historical understanding. And I label this first topic the problem. The second topic we will touch upon in this podcast is uh, the solution to this problem. And the third topic is a specific point of focus you explain in your lecture, and this is medical history. So to start with the first topic, uh, you argue against making the past relatable by personalizing histories of war and violence. So stories that give history a face, as they say, 
for example, in school books, but also in commemorative events and in biographies. Why do you see these kinds of stories as not being productive for our historical knowledge? Well, that, that was a bit grumpy, wasn't it? It and, was. <laughs> well, you know, I wasn't there to make friends, to be honest. No, there's, there's, there's two things important here. The first is that I think that personal stories are extremely important as a source of historical knowledge, right? There are many things that we can only see or hear through personal testimony from people because they're just not registered any other way. Governments don't cover the entirety of human existence. And as a social historian, the things that people say themselves, the people that the things that people want to say are important to the kind of work that I do. So I'm all for personal stories. You are. Yes. I, I even have a personal story myself you do. at home. Yeah. <laughs> you would be amazed. But what then was the point of... Well, I noticed that there is a shift in historiography and especially in the public understanding of history where these personal stories are no longer a means to gain historical understanding, but an end in themselves, right? They don't function to better understand history. And I'm afraid that in many respects, they actually function to stop us from gaining historical understanding. Because the good thing about personal stories is that they are, they are by their nature, yeah, not very much, well, they are influenced by geopolitical, polit political situations or conflict, but they don't cause it, right? There are very few people who cause a world war or who cause racism. So the, the person, the individual is in that sense rarely to blame. You can make a personal story about uh, a volunteer in the Waffen SS, how they got into the bad situation that they got in, a colonial soldier, uh, a revolutionary anti-colonial soldier, a mother, etc. I think in a way, the focus we have on this kind of personal experience, first of all, distracts us from the fact that there are also fundamental inequities and injustices that need addressing. And whether or not a person had a good time or a bad time in the past is not really here or there, right? That is not the most important thing. Secondly, and this is perhaps even more pernicious, is the habit people have of seeking out stories of people like them, people to whom they are related, right? So this kind of individual or family link, or people with whom they agree. We see this, for example, in discussions about the Indonesian War of Independence. Um, there is very little we can say in general against people who were conscripted into the colonial army and sent off to fight in Indonesia. But if we focus overwhelmingly on these biographical stories of suffering and loss and, well, at the very least, extreme discomfort, um, then we also create an historical image in which this narrative, at the end of the day, will become dominant. So... For example, Anne Frank? Or? Well, Anne, 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 Anne Frank is... God, all these Annas. Um, <laughs> they dominate history in such a strange <laughs> way. Um, no, I mean, Anne Frank is like the, or, the origin, right? This, this, she is the... One of the first people whose experience, whose testimony, because that's what the diary ended up being, uh, whether or not she wanted it or not, um, this diary became one of the first 
possibilities to give some huge historical event a face. Right? So the Holocaust, the fear, the being in Hague, of course, the actual murder of Anne Frank and her deportation are not in the diary. Uh, but still, it's an important inroad for people, and it was for a long time an important inroad, into understanding and appreciating uh, the history of the Shoah. And I think that is broadly positive. But I think it's also important to recognize that this will only work to a certain point. Right? You can give history a face and you can do it again. But if you tell all historical stories only through personal testimony, then at the end of the day, all these personal testimonies again become a kind of anonymous crowd. Right? I, I compared it to elevator music. Because I get this, of course, I'm, I subscribe to all sorts of streams in the field. And these, these personal stories and these pictures are just streaming in every single day. They don't tell us anything about how violence or war works. Is that well, the they, they, they might be a good introduction to get people interested. Mm -hmm. But I think by now I'm interested enough and I need to think harder and also maybe more uncomfortably about the causes of violence, the causes of discrimination, the causes of ultimately mass murder, genocide, uh, as we see it in society. And this endless giving face which is even more terrible in education. There it really, everything has to be told through a personal story. Uh, I have young children, so I'm really at the forefront of this. But there he comes, you know, and this is the boy Kwame. Kwame is also eight. He lives in Accra, in Ghana. His father, etc., etc. This is Ming Ming. Ming Ming is a girl who is also as eight years old. She lives in Nanjing, in China. Do these stories help your children, or perhaps other children, to engage more uh, with this topic so that they can actually learn about the structural... No, they would if they would be sufficiently rare. Mm. And, and that's the point. This is, a, this is an, an effect of making things relatable through a personal story that work for as long as we don't make everything relatable through a personal story. And uh, what we are seeing now is that we just create a very bland um, thing. Which is not to say that it's always bad. Well, I like the Stolperstein, I like making uh, genocide visible in the street. I'm not necessarily against reproducing names of Holocaust victims. There, there are arguments for it. Um, but this, I think, is becoming a bit much. Okay, thanks. Okay, let's go to the second topic. Um, so we just talked about the problem of personalizing narratives or personalizing histories and how this doesn't explain anything about the larger structural system of, of violence. How can we investigate this long-lasting impact of, of violence and of, uh, of war on groups of people? What is your solution to the problem of personalized histories? Yeah, well, this is, of course, a very interesting question. I come from uh, a field of quantitative history, so I'm used to work with uh, quantitative data about countable things, right? Um, deaths, births, incomes, and these are quite measurable and they are also aggregated. They are about a lot of people. It doesn't matter what your income is for calculating the average income of your cohort, because your cohort is so big. 
Um, with, with stories and attitudes and culture, that is, of course, much more difficult to do. But I do think it's important to give it a try, right? to try to engage with this multi-voiced world of leftover testimony and political text and all sorts of talking. Uh, and to think more closely about the questions that are important, for example, in this case, to the field of mass violence and um, war and genocide. And what we are seeing now, for example, at the NIOT is that uh, there's a project ongoing to uh, digitize letters, to make the machine readable. I'm sure there will be a great NIOT Rewind podcast about it in the future with, uh, with Carlijn and Annelies in Milan. This is, uh, this is a great project um, because it helps us to, to an extent, aggregate um, voices. Now, of course, you could read everything, but actually you can't read everything because the problem of the 20th century is that we simply have too much text. Um, but we can now let computers read uh, texts. And because we have relatively affordable and powerful computers on the one hand and very advanced techniques from the field of, say, computational linguistics, um, we can and indeed should try to investigate um, aggregate opinion. And I'm thinking of like big questions about solidarity, about belonging. Uh, I think it was Helen Stein who coined the term the universe of obligation. What's that? Which people or who is worthy of your solidarity? And if you think about things like genocide, they require a process of placing people outside of that universe of obligation. You have to kind of de-people or de-person people. Now, this is a cultural phenomenon. It's not something like a death rate or a national income. It is something that happens in the language between people. As we are establishing ever larger bodies of language, I think we can systematically investigate how this process works and what its consequences are, right? How do people in a colonial army, aggregated, look at the colonized people? And now we have a very different kind of question from what were the experiences or the feelings of this individual soldier and shall we have a monument and shall we interview the children and blah, 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 pictures on the internet. Um, to what do these attitudes on a larger scale actually mean and do they change? Right? What kind of sources do you use for this? Well, I haven't really started yet, to be honest. As I said, I was setting an agenda. But things like letters and diaries are certainly an inroad here. But at the same time, the same kind of question and the same kind of technique is already being used quite effectively um, in, in political texts very boring texts, say, say minutes of parliamentary discussions, are readily available from many countries, and there we can very well ask questions about solidarity. And how does this work? So you have these digitalized sources, and you, the computer reads these sources, the, the discourses of these sources, and evaluate. How, how does this work? Well, one technique that I'm very fond of is uh, word embeddings. And, uh, I've published quite a bit of, about it together with uh, Milan van Lange, or Milan van Lange published about it together with me. 
But this is a technique developed in the 20th century, but it has become much more prominent uh, recently also because of the work of companies like Google that try to place words in their semantic context. So you should imagine, for example, we take a, a billion word text, um, we take the words therein and we estimate, I'm now making it sound much simpler than it actually is, um, you know, how do they relate to each other? Which words are, are in the same spot, happen next to each other, like New and York, or which um, words often share a context, like coffee or tea, right? People don't say, I want tea coffee, in the way that they would say, I will go to New York now, but people will say, I'm drinking tea or I'm drinking coffee and it's nice and hot. So this way you can see the context, say the friends, the associations of a certain term at a certain point in time. Now, once you throw in a word that has political meaning around questions of violence, and this, this becomes very different. And uh, as, as a demonstration, I've done this for the word Sukarno, uh, of course, the, the uh, leader of the Indonesian revolution, uh, which had the advantage that that word is, uh, th there's no one else called Sukarno in the data that I have, and Sukarno is not also a word for something else. If I would use Anne, it would be much harder because there are several people called Anne mentioned throughout all sorts of Dutch publications. So I think what, what is the, the challenge here is to increasingly try to use uh, less official, more, more personal, more small-scale data and see if we can aggregate opinions and views and feelings that are expressed in them to be able to say something about how groups of people um, related to other groups of people. I mean, I'm a professor of social history, after all, and, and that is what social history, I think, looks at. Although, as I said in the lecture, I'm not entirely sure what social history is, um, but yeah. Maybe nobody was really paying attention or they thought, well, you know, we can just have a professor of social history who doesn't know what it is. So let's stay one step further. What does this, this way of doing research teach us what personalized histories don't? What this does and what this kind of personalized history will never do is that it tells you something about social norms and shared ideas. And why is this important? Um, because individuals, individuals really are all, just like in the life of Brian, they are all individuals. And that I love that. I, I really like to engage with individuals and, and they make my life beautiful, <laughs> but uh, they have not that much place in my research. I want to know what is common, what is shared. Because, like it or not, mass violence is called mass violence for a reason. It's something you do together. And if you look at a total war, like the Second World War, that is an enormous collective effort. That's a lot of work that you're going to do. And this work doesn't get done. These sacrifices are not made without there being at least some degree of a shared story between the people engaged in the conflict. And that is a field that I, as a quantitative historian, with a very strong cultural interest, and that's what I re really like to engage with more. It 
is difficult but not impossible to study how motivations in groups happen. Then of course, when you're talking about cohort effects, you have further on, you have to question, how does that play in the rest of your life? If you were, let's say, an impressionable age, um, although I'm, I'm now so old, I think everybody almost is of an impressionable age, but let's say a teenager, during a time in which anti-Semitism is a state ideology and it's widely shared and very much in the public mind. Um, how does that affect your life later on? Not as one individual, but as a group of people. Thank you, Rolf. Now we arrive at the last topic of this interview, which is one of the focus points of your research. I would like to talk about the impact of war in early life. Tell us about this project and uh, about how you bring your thoughts about how to do historical research into practice. Yeah, well, this is this is really this is my favorite project at the moment, and it all starts with gynecology and medicine more generally. There is a paradigm in modern medicine called Dohat. It's also, I think, a city in India, but here it means developmental origins of health and disease. And there is this notion that what happens to you in your very early life, so from conception to birth, first months of life, maybe also a bit before conception, so before you as a biological entity start existing. The belief is increasingly that what happens to you in that period has a great impact on your further life. And there are less well-established but interesting ideas that these might also be transferable to your own children. First, we have this question, you know, how does this very early life experience or conditions in utero influence later life? And the problem with humans is that they live quite long. I mean, it's not necessarily a problem for me individually or for anybody listening, but from a research point of view, like a fruit fly um, or a mouse has the advantage that the period between conception and death is, is relatively short and fits within, say, an NWO-funded research project. But uh, people live like 80 years or something. And so it's very difficult to investigate in populations, well, not to mention the problem that they just roam freely. You can't keep people in laboratory circumstances very long. It's very difficult to investigate uh, this kind of effect. So what you could do is take a bunch of pregnant women, uh, investigate their life, their lifestyles, their diet, etc., and then do a follow-up study of these children over the next 80 years. This kind of work is being done, right? Uh, and it's very interesting, but um, yeah, it's not very practical. And so what you see in this Dohat paradigm is that it has driven people to look more at uh, historical pregnancies and historical births. What if you would not like wait 80 years until these people's life is over after birth, but if you would take old people now and look what they were like as babies. This has started an interest from the late 1960s onwards, especially in Dutch hunger winter children. So children who were exposed in utero just after birth, maybe slightly before conception, to bad circumstances in the war. And there has been some research done, but all that research has not involved historians. And that means that as great as these projects are, and some of these people are 
great friends and they are fantastic researchers whom I admire, but their knowledge of history is minimal and their usage of historical data is misinformed and usually completely devoid of source criticism. Now I had already more or less accepted this as just a fact of life and you know we're not involved in it just the way it is when I was contacted by some schoenmakers of the Erasmus Medical Center. Now, uh, some is a neonatologist, so someone who delivers babies but also studies um, pregnancy, childbirth and very early life. A neonate is a newborn. And some had found a massive amount of birth and pregnancy information, the Partersboeken uh, of the Rijkskweekschool for Vloedvrouwen in Rotterdam. This is a fantastic source we have between 1938 and 1948, which is the period we are investigating 14,000 births with very, very detailed information wow. about those people. And some thought, well, if I'm going to use all this historical data, maybe it's a good idea to contact an historian. And so what we are setting up is the Rotterdam Birth Cohort Study, where we, first of all, um, pay students to do a massive data entry project to enter all these records into a database. And then we can start looking, at least for the early life phase, how do these people fare, these babies, at first. Um, we have, of course, the hunger winter, there's a famine. But whom does it affect most? Are they richer people? Are they poorer people? Because we have so much information about these mothers um, that we can actually say quite a lot. Um, but there's also other, say, stressors, as medical research would say. There is the, the Razia of 1944. All young men are taken away, men of working age. But of course, in men, working age and procreating age, to a very large extent, overlap, right? A 30-year-old is both good at working in a factory making munitions in Germany and in, at impregnating women. So a lot of these uh, families are broken up during pregnancy. And that's another effect that we would be interested in seeing. And then, of course, in the longer run, there's the question of a follow-up. So do people who are heavily affected in terms of, say, birth weight by these warlike circumstances, uh, do they live shorter lives? If you look at the work by Lumey, who we saw a while ago in Your Hunger Project, he was able to demonstrate that the hunger winter children actually live considerably shorter lives than people born just before or just after. So yeah, that's, that's, not, that's another field that I'm now engaging in. It's another cohort effect. And I guess some of these children are also born under a bad sign, mm. just like, uh, like in the Albert King song. So the mythology of computational analysis helps you with this? Everything I do is quantitative in a way, but embedded in what you would call cultural social history and source criticism. It's very easy, well it's not easy, it's a lot of work, but it's not complicated to just enter all these data and start throwing out measurements. Um, but I think we think that once you start doing something like that, you need to engage with questions about, you know, who are these people? What is the bias in my data? And the same is true if you would look at, say, diarists or letter writers. You know, who are these people? Where are they positioned in the society in which they function? Are they just ordinary rank-and-file soldiers? Or are they officers? 
The same is true for my babies in Rotterdam. Do they get born in this clinic because their mothers are badly housed or because their house has been bombed out in 1940? Or are there also wealthy women with large mansions in Kralingen or Hilligersberg? I don't want to throw in a spoiler, but there are very few wealthy women in the, in the sample. So I think it's important to engage with the background of your data, yeah. with uh, a social um, and cultural understanding. The research is already running, right? You did a sample and it's, you're working on it now. Can you elaborate on some preliminary findings? Well, yes. Well, we are not, we're not done yet. I actually need about 150,000 euro of funding at the moment. Uh, you look at me in a way that says, I'm not going to give you 150,000 euro today, kid. Well, that's just too bad. But um, we need more money to finish the data entry. But based on what we have now, uh, we do see at least a very significant effect of, first of all, poverty, uh, and secondly, of the wartime circumstances. So from 1940 to 1944, so that is before the Dutch hunger winter start, the weight of the placenta, the weight of children, uh, the BMI of their mothers is consistently dropping. So even before there was a real famine, um, there's, there's a clear deterioration of biological living standards visible in, um, in the sample that we already have. Which is interesting, um, also in the light of previous research, that kind of treats the hunger winter in isolation. And I would question if that is actually such a good idea. It's more like an intensivation of a, a general deterioration of biological living standards. Well, dramatic deterioration, but still. Yeah, a longer perspective is fruitful then. Uh, thank you, Rolf. Oh, thank you, <laughs> uh, This sounds like a really promising uh, and innovative research, and I'm looking forward to read about it more. And uh, I remember that I said that your uh, inaugural lecture was a bit all over the place, but I didn't mean that in a negative way, because I really enjoyed it, and I thought it was very inspiring. Well, thank you. I, I thought it was a bit all over the place as I was delivering it. I thought, oh no, what are these people going to think? No. But, you know, you, you, I, I tried to put all the stuff in that I was planning to do in the future, which is what an inaugural lecture is for. Mm -hmm. It's just I'm not a very focused person. Well, I think it worked out perfectly. Thank you. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. A few days after our interview, Rolf texted me that he would like to add some important additional information to our conversation. So he recorded the following message for us. So I stopped by Anna's place to record this podcast uh, when I was on my way to the National Archives in The Hague. And I was going to The Hague because I was going to look in the files left there by the epidemiologist Zina Stein in the 1970s. Um, because my head was so full of the work of Zina Stein, I accidentally misnamed Professor Helen Fine, whom I referenced as a genocide scholar during the podcast. So, Professor Fine, if you're listening, my apologies. And everybody else, where you hear Helen Stein, I mean Helen Fine. Thanks. Thanks.